and to all the familiar faces out there, hello. It, it's so good to see you all. Just to uh, give you a quick up life update for those of you uh, that I do know and do love, uh, there's been a few changes since I saw you last. Last May, I finally graduated from Baylor after eight years and several degrees. <laughs> and then uh, the following August, last August, I moved to Beirut, Lebanon, where I currently live and serve. Uh, and then just three weeks ago, I got married to my husband. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm, I'm so honored to, to be able to introduce him to my church family and my church home. It really is an honor to, to be here today. And before I dive in, I want to just start with a thank you. Really, I, King's Grant, the way you've loved and supported and encouraged me these years, uh, I, I, can't, I can't thank enough. Really, you've made me who I am. As I pass through these halls as a, a child and then as a teenager... Uh, and then as a young adult, you steadfastly taught and loved and encouraged me. And you proclaimed and demonstrated the gospel of Christ. My faith would not be what it is without each and every one of you. In fact, it was actually in this sanctuary, surrounded by this church family, that God first called me to international missions. So thank you for the way you've impacted my life and my faith. Please pray with me. God, as we gather here today, I ask that you speak to us. Open our eyes, open our eyes to see, God, and our, our hearts to hear and to know uh, that we may be convicted, challenged, and encouraged by your truths. Father, may our worship here today reorient our hearts and our minds back to you so that by your spirit and in your truth, we may be empowered to do your will. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you have gathered by now, I currently live and work in Beirut, Lebanon. And for those of you who may not be familiar with, with Lebanon itself, it is located uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, just uh, west of Syria and north of Israel. A very stable part of the world, clearly. <laughs> so I moved there last August to volunteer with a local nonprofit called the Lebanese Society for Educational and Social Development. They are an umbrella organization with six sub-ministries that each work in, in unique but collaborative ways to, to serve the community, but also to equip the local church, who, who often is at the forefront of that service. So when I was in the first stages of deciding to move to Lebanon, I assumed I would be working with their refugee arm. They do a lot of refugee ministry. That's one of their largest ones. Uh, and that's not surprising, given the fact that Lebanon has the highest per capita of refugees in the world. In fact, one in four people in Lebanon is a, a refugee. One in four people. But my employers and myself, we could not have imagined what the following year and a half would hold for the entire Lebanese population. Starting in October 2019, there were kind of a looming sense of economic collapse. And people's fears were realized a few months later when the economy did finally collapse. In the past 18 months alone, the local currency has lost 95% of its value. 
And not only is the currency losing its value, but food prices are skyrocketing. In the same time frame, uh, the, the food and beverage prices rose on average 670%. And as you can imagine, this has devastated people's lives. The, the poverty rate has doubled to over 55% of the population and rising. And for, for refugees who are already the most vulnerable, they are now at a 90% of living in extreme poverty. As if this was not enough, you may have heard the last August, August 4th, there was a massive explosion in which 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate exploded in the Beirut port, killing over 200 people, injuring over 7,000, uh, and destroying homes, businesses, schools, and hospitals. In their anger and their despair and their hopelessness, a common, a common question emerged in Lebanon. Where is God? And you know, that isn't a new question. It has, it's a question that we've been asking since the beginning of time. Maybe it's even a question you're asking yourself today. But praise God, he has an answer for us. And throughout scripture, we see God answering that question. Uh, as one theologian put it, the story of scripture is the story of God's relational presence with us. And as we start, most of us know that story begins in Eden. So here God walked with Adam and Eve, uh, and as scripture says, in the cool of the night. So God walked with Adam and Eve. And, and here in Eden, it was kind of the sanctuary. This, this place of unity between God and humanity. A place where people had a very direct relationship with God, the creator. Uh, but, as we know, things also changed. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey, sin created this chasm between God and man. People could no longer walk directly in his presence. And the close and personal relationship they once had with him had now fundamentally been altered. And that is where the question was born. Where is God? We can no longer see God. We no longer walk with God. Where is God? Now, as scripture goes on to show, God was still with his people, but not quite fully in their midst. Yet God repeatedly shows up in the story. We see that in Genesis, he appears to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He also appears to, to Hagar and to Sarah. And echoed throughout these encounters was his promise, I am with you. I will be with you. And as he called each of these people forward, he promised that his presence would be with them and their ancestors. Yet as we move from Genesis to Exodus, another big event happens. We see the Israelites fall into slavery. And again, with the suffering that arises, uh, the question comes, where is God? Where is God in all of this? Yet despite the seeming silence of God during that captivity, through Moses and the Exodus, God revealed that he saw and heard the cries of the people. Now, after God liberates his people from slavery, he calls Moses to Mount Sinai and sets up a covenant with the people. Now, in that time, a covenant was an official legal agreement between two parties. And so God calls them and says, calls to Moses and says, listen, here's the covenant. 
I will be your God, and you will be my people if you obey me and obey my commands. But as people who had also just seen his power and his might on display in Egypt, the people wondered, how can this holy and mighty God live in our midst? And so God calls Moses again and gives him specific instructions. And he says uh, to build a tabernacle. In, in Exodus 25, we read, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose hearts prompt them to give. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. You see, in Hebrew, the word tabernacle literally means to dwell or the dwelling place. And so the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God among the people. And for the Israelites, it became the the physical dwelling place. It was also this visible symbol that God's presence was among the people. That the promise he had made, he would keep. And throughout their time in the wilderness, the tabernacle moved with the people and served as this physical place where God would commune with man. Uh, It was also the place of communication, of atonement, and of worship where the human-divine relationship was restored. In Exodus 29, we see that this was God's purpose all along in liberating his people. He says in Exodus 29, verse 45 through 46, I will dwell among the Israelites, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. You see, we see that God liberated his people that he might dwell among them. His purpose for his people was not just freedom. It was a restored relationship with him. And we see this again throughout the book of Exodus and Leviticus. God in his grace defines the means by which his people can enter back into his holy presence. And despite the up and down nature of the people's obedience, which was their half of the covenant. Exodus ends with this very climactic event in which the people had been building the tabernacle, following God's commands. And then chapter 40 of Exodus, we see that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God chose at the end of Exodus to dwell among his people after all. And we see this happen again one other time in scripture, when the glory of the Lord fills the place. We see this happen over 400 years later when the glory of the Lord filled Solomon's temple, the temple that God had commanded him to build. And you see, whereas the tabernacle was this temporary portable place where God can move with his people, uh, this was intended to be the permanent dwelling place of the Lord among his people. A proof that he would be with them and continue to live with them. A place where people could be assured and reminded that the Lord was with them. But then something happened again. We see in 586 BC, the, the Babylonians, who were one of the largest empires at the time, they, they attacked and completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. They, they then took the Israelites into what was known as the Babylonian captivity. And you see, this wasn't a surprise. It shouldn't have been a surprise. For years, God had been sending prophets warning the Israelites of of their impending judgment. 
You see, Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet, he prophesied clearly about the destruction of, of both the city and the temple. As a result of, of Israel's idolatry, their social injustice, and their religious hypocrisy. Yet they refused to repent despite the warning. Instead of humbly and reverently honoring God and humbling themselves before him, they dishonored and offended God through their wickedness and disobedience. And as a result, their judgment was the loss of his presence. As they lived in exile, the people uh, underwent an existential crisis. Not only did they lose their homes and their culture, and many of them family and friends through the violence, they also lost the sense of God. They had feelings of forsakenness and isolation and hopelessness, that God has abandoned us. And again, they asked, they cried out, where is God? But God, in his faithfulness, had not abandoned them completely. What he did instead is he continued to send them prophets. He continued to speak to them in that way. And he told them that a day would come when he would restore his people into right relationship with him once again. Throughout the exilic prophets, you hear God pointing to a coming of a new temple, a permanent place where he would dwell with his people, a physical space where heaven and earth would meet again and people could once again come directly to his presence. And so what we see is slowly the people return from exile uh, back to the land. Uh, They return and waited for the Lord to fulfill this promise, the promise that he would once again dwell with them. But then for 400 years after the prophets, the Lord was silent. But then an angel appeared to a virgin named Mary. And as the disciple Matthew says in chapter 1 of his gospel, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. John describes it this way in his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the word here he chooses, it's significant. It's not insignificant. He chooses dwelling because John, it's the same root as the word tabernacle. So what John is saying is that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And if that wasn't clear enough, uh, in chapter 2, with a little less subtlety, John shares the story of how Jesus cleared the temple. Then in verses 19 through 21, uh, when the priests come before Jesus and question his authority, this is his answer. Destroy the temple, and I will raise it in three days, they replied. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You are going to destroy it and raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, John, along with the other gospel writers, makes the clear connection that Jesus Christ is the incarnate presence of God. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God walks with us once again. And like the temple in the Old Testament, the gospel writers point out how Jesus, as the new temple, is the center of atonement 
and worship and communication with God. And through the life of Jesus on earth, we see what the world is like when Jesus directly walks with us and is present with us. We see people being healed. We see physical needs being met, people being forgiven, and relationships being restored. And we see the freedom and transformation that comes when he willingly pours out his grace on people, even the worst of sinners. You see, when God walked the earth as Jesus, he gave us a glimpse of the world as it should be and as it one day will be. But then he was crucified. And for three anguished days, Jesus' followers, his disciples, wondered in their fear and in their confusion, where is God? But as we know, death could not hold him. And on the third day, he rose again and appeared to the disciples. And with him, he brought this this news of a gift. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And praise God, what he, what he said would come happened. We see in Acts, we see how the Spirit of God flooded the church. We see the very presence of God coming to dwell not only with his people, but in his people. In Ephesians 4, Paul describes this profound new reality this way. He says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. You see, with Christ as the cornerstone, the body of believers is the new and final temple of God. You see, individually and collectively, we as believers house God's spirit in us. So in the great mystery of God's plan, he he came down and took on our flesh and he dwelt among us. But after his death and resurrection and ascension, his presence did not leave the earth. Instead, he sent his spirit to dwell within us. As a church, we are now the temple of God on earth. Praise God for that. And and with this new reality comes a very profound privilege and responsibility. You see, as God's people filled with his spirit, he has chosen us to carry on the work of Christ, this work of redemption and reconciliation. And I've seen this done. I've seen and heard what happens when God's people submit to his spirit and say, God, use me. In the days after the Beirut explosion, uh, one of our church partners, they they went out in the street and they said, we, we want to set up a tent. We want to offer food and, and water and prayer as people try and piece their lives back together. Because uh, for, for weeks after the explosion, people were on the street sweeping up debris, trying to put together their homes and their businesses. And, and one woman named Nora, she, she was walking by. Um, she had just been walking up and down the street 
still in shock uh, of the legitimate trauma, if you can imagine. So she was still in shock and just confused and and angry and sad. And, And she was wondering, she was wrestling really with herself and with God and wondering, how could this happen? Why did this happen? You see, she was a single mother with four sons, one who, who was autistic, and she was crippled with the fear uh, and uncertainty of what lie ahead. And when Nora saw the tent, she, she went up and she, she asked for a cup of coffee. She saw they were giving away some free coffee. And, and one of the women from the church, she, she saw her and she looked and she kind of sensed her troubles and asked her to, to sit down and talk for a while. She, she listened to her. She, she heard her pain. And she took those to God on her behalf. And from that day on, uh, Rula, the woman, and the church, they walked alongside her in her recovery. And this means they helped her rehabilitate her home. They supported her with food vouchers and formed a deep relationship with her and her son that provided the social support that they needed. And a few months later, she shared about the impact the church had on her. She said, Are there really people like this in the world? When I'm around them, I feel the most wonderful peace, just knowing people have such hope inside of them, and that they are willing to help strangers without anything in return. I always ask myself why they're on my way and are helping me like this. I thank God because he placed her in my path. I was walking in Beirut and crying and thinking out loud and worrying all the time. There was no life anymore. Then Rula and the church came and gave us life. You see, through the darkness, all of the darkness of love on the past year, it's been incredible to witness how, how the church has been the light, how they have been bringers uh, of support, bringers of, of help, but also bringers of hope. They can say, we can help you now because we trust that God is with us and he will provide for us uh, and give them a hope of, of a future to come. And you see, they, they're living out in very practical ways the faith that they proclaim. But I've also seen this done here in America, in Virginia, in Virginia Beach at King's Grant. Uh, since 2004, I've witnessed the ways that God's Spirit has worked through his people in this congregation to feed the hungry, to house the homeless, and to walk alongside people in both their joys and their sorrows. So friends, God works beyond us in ways we can't imagine. In Lebanon, I've heard of incredible stories of God working through dreams and visions and miracles. But in his infinite wisdom, he has also chosen to work through us. As the church of Christ, filled with his spirit, he has invited and empowered us to be his presence on earth. So when we look around and we see the suffering of our neighbors, when we look and see the pain of the world, and when we see people overcome by grief and hopelessness, and in despair hear them cry, where is God? May they say of us, we know where God is. He's here with us. We've seen him in his church. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the way your spirit has worked in us and continues to work through us. And Father, today we submit ourselves to you and to the power of your spirit. God, remind us that our lives 
especially as Christ followers, uh, is not anything, is not just about us, God, that we, you transform us and we are grateful for the way you do and the way that impacts our lives. But God, remind us always that we are your temples on earth, that we bear this uh, profound responsibility, God, that when people come to us, when people stand before us, they are standing before your presence. May we take that responsibility seriously, God, and may all of our actions and our words and our love for one another bear your image to the world. We love you, Father, and we pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.